And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, <clears throat> a snowy edition. It's snowing here tonight in the Land of Enchantment, of the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when increasingly, not even on this show, but all over the world, incredibly seminal, history-changing things are happening. And they're happening literally right in front of our eyes. Now, the problem is that we have two different sets of eyes watching. We have one set which says, okay, this is happening. Then we have another set looking at the same information, the same data, and they're saying something radically, totally different is happening. And I'm really grappling with this because I, you know, this intrigues me. I don't think it's official politics. I don't think it's psychology. I don't think it's upbringing or training or, you know, listening to Fox. I think it's something much deeper and therefore much more interesting. And I'm trying to find the right people to assemble to have the right kind of conversation on the other side of midnight because you cannot live as a democratic society in a fragmented reality. Either everyone agrees that this, these are the facts. Remember what, what Justice was it who said, you know, you're entitled to your own opinion but not your own facts. The problem is that we have, ever since Kelly, you know, Conway stood on the White House driveway and said, well, these alternative facts, which, of course, is, is nuts, it's insane. There's only one set of facts. The problem, of course, for limited, frail, fallible human beings is determining what are the facts. And I will, definitely I will promise this audience that <clears throat> for the next few weeks or out, we're going to have someone on the show, the person I've been kind of chasing for, for several uh, years now, an epistemologist, to discuss how do you discern facts? How do you, you know, how do you figure out the truth from just error or in a more pernicious case, outright lies and falsehoods. That is the trick. That is the problem. So, um, let's go to, uh, for those of you who are new to the show, you want to click on the other side of midnight.com. That's our website. And then you want to look for the banner tonight for Sunday night, January 7th, an exopolitical origin for the Hebrew people as a driver of anti-Semitism. Now, that's a deliberately evocative and provocative headline. That's how you get folks to pay attention. I'm hoping at the end of our three hours tonight that you will have a little better appreciation of the complexities of what's going on in Gaza, what's been going on with the Jewish people for millennia, and a larger frame, a background in which to put these current events into a <clears throat> hopefully more appropriate context. We will get to that. In the meantime, when you go to you click on that banner tonight on the main page, the home page of the other side of midnight, click on the banner that will take you to what we call the guest page. And you'll see the same banner at the top of the guest page. And under the banner, you will see two little lines of white type on black background. The first one says fast links to items. Click on my name, which, by the way, in case you don't know where you are, 
you're in Richard Hoagland's domain. That will take you to the uh, uh, show page uh, region of the guest page where we have what we call radio with pictures. And item number one, these are news items, um, I found from Reuters a very good summary of the last three quarters of a century of insanity in the Middle East, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the origins of the wars that have been going on there interminably for almost a century, um, background on the politics, the UN, the uh, uh, British Empire collapse, the designation of the Palestinian state um, as non-functioning, the creation of the state of Israel, and originally, you know, there were supposed to be two states. <clears throat> Under the uh, declarations, there was supposed to be an Israeli state and a Palestinian state. Well, in the short term, the huge fundamental problem with the Middle East was the seeds of its destruction, the seeds of everything we're seeing tonight in terms of the insanity going on in Gaza, started from the elimination of a second Palestinian state co-equal with the state of Israel. And from thence, all these later problems have ensued, multiplied like gangrene. And the way out of the box is not the Netanyahu non-solution. So we will will get to that. Item number two. Um, I found a chronicle the other day. Um, Unfortunately, it was on Wikipedia. And if a lot of you, like me, do not trust Wikipedia, particularly when it comes to political uh, content, uh, I looked for another source. This is from the Britannica, which I think is a little more objective. Just the history of anti-Semitism. Why have the Jewish people for millennia, this goes way, way, way back, and it's documented. It's not, you know, you can't argue that the Jewish people have been, you know, persecuted, derided, um, enslaved, uh, disparaged, uh, every possible indignity you can imagine visited upon them as has been done to other people, other groups uh, on this planet. Humans do not have a good track record here. Boy, do we not. But why has such a tiny population. I mean, the number of uh, Jewish people or people espousing the uh, Jewish religion is in the order of under 20 million on a planet of 7 billion people. How come they still in the 21st century, particularly now around this country, around the world, uh, the current, you know, Israeli government situation and Gaza notwithstanding, why is there a rising curve of really overt acts and uh, naked expressions of hate and denigration and all? Why are this, this this tiny population infinitesimal compared to the people on planet Earth tonight? Why have they been and continue to be singled out? My guest, uh, Dr. Alfred Weber, he has a JD, among other things. We're going to get into that momentarily. Why, why has he figured it out in one way that leads him to a really set of extraordinary out-of-the-box conclusions 
And I, who's a mainstream scientist, you know, Cronkite, NASA, etc., looking at this through totally different lenses, have come to essentially the same conclusion, but through totally separate doorways. I love the idea of independent confirming evidence. That's one of the ways you figure out truth from lies or stupidity. You get independent confirmation, but you have to make sure that the sourcing is really, really independent. It's like that old Marin joke about, you know, how many psychiatrists is take to change a light bulb in Marin County? Well, only one, <clears throat> but the light bulb has to want to change. You have to really want to find the truth, and you have to slog through the muck and the mire and the noise and the, all the other stuff to get to those nuggets, but you must make sure they are truly independent. And that's why I um, instantly, when I saw Alfred's latest, or one of his, his latest uh, uh, opinion pieces, I said, I've got to get him on the show because this is exactly what we need to be talking about the really deep, really extraordinary, in both our separate models, origins of anti-Semitism on planet Earth tonight in the early part of the 21st century. By the way, Happy New Year, everyone. You, uh, as Betty Davis said, you better buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Item number three. This is not just brought in because, you know, we do... E.T. stuff, or that uh, Alfred is an expert in the E.T. stuff. This is incredibly relevant. One of the reasons why we're having this conversation tonight, he and I, why it's possible for us to have this conversation tonight is because of what's going on in Washington. Oh, I can hear you groaning even now, all the way around the world. Yes, because what's happening in Washington is that next week, the subcommittee led by the Tennessee Congressman uh, Burchette, is having a private briefing by the Inspector General of the Defense Department of the United States of America, a classified briefing on the subject of, wait for it, UFOs. I mean, come on. Did anybody out there, did any of you think in our lifetime this would go from the 11 o'clock end story at the end of the 11 o'clock news, what we used to call the kicker, to where it is a mainstream subject. If you want to know how mainstream this has become, you want to go to the Paradigm Research Group's uh, website, uh, Paradigm, you know, RG, and uh, that's run by our friend and colleague Steve Bassett. He is tabulating, thank God somebody is, the extraordinary rising curve of serious mainstream media, news, papers of record, major network coverage of the UAP UFO uh, disclosure process. It is now completely in the realm of mainstream politics, backbiting, backstabbing, you know, gaining advantage over your opponents, uh, telling partial truths, which is like telling, you know, lies uh, on the uh, cheap. In other words, it's it's been brought in. This this extraordinary subject finally has been brought within a general mainstream conversation. And frankly, 
I don't really care what the laws are. I don't care that they sabotage the Schumer Amendment and that the current NDAA has such a watered-down version of the Schumer Amendment on UAP disclosure of technology and information and bodies and all that, that it's basically pointless. That's not the point. The biggest inhibitor to a general political resolution through the normal political process where every other human problem has to be at some point resolved is to make it part of the conversation. Uh, Years ago, when Carl Sagan was talking to one of our colleagues about the early Mars investigations at SRI, um, Dr. John Brandenburg, um, Brandenburg had done some really interesting early, early analysis as part of our investigation uh, when I brought it to his attention that the isotopic ratios of the Martian atmosphere corresponded much more to what I would see in the aftermath of a major thermonuclear war than simply cosmic rays and spallation of heavy nuclei in the atmosphere, etc., etc. And he eventually wrote a book about ancient nuclear war on Mars based on those first conversations as part of the independent Mars investigation. Well, with his background as a nuclear physicist and his participation in our work, our early work at SRI, he called up Sagan one day and he tried to tell him, I forget what the detail was, and Sagan said to him, uh, Dr. Brandenburg, it's not whether you're right or wrong. You're not even in the conversation. And that has been the attitude regarding UFOs, ETs, hyperdimensional beings, paranormal ghosts, return of ancient loved ones, all of this foo-foo stuff. It's not even been in the mainstream conversation until tonight. Now, not exactly tonight. It's been the last, you know, several months. But if you watch, as I do, Mainstream indicators for what's in, what's out, what's de rigueur, what's, uh, you know, beyond the pale. I can think of some more cliches if you want to wait a minute. Uh, In other words, what it's kind of politically appropriate to talk about. Suddenly, overdue by decades, the immersion of human experience, the immersion of human history in the UFO ET hyperdimensional milieu is becoming part of the mainstream conversation. So, frankly, again, I'm going to reiterate, I don't care what the laws are. As soon as you have made this subject comfortable at a cocktail party on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, you have crossed a Rubicon where, wherever it lies, with whomever it lies, and whoever is concealing what it lies, It's all going to collapse. The cover-up is in the process before our very eyes of collapsing, regardless of a specific act of legislation, because there are more good people than bad. There's more truth than lies. There's more human curiosity than indifference or fear. And with all those on our side, I would say that 2024, grading into 2025, is going to be perhaps two of the most pivotally, seminally important transitional years in the history of not only the United States, but of the entire world. 
Okay, moving on, let's skip item number four because that will come into my conversation with Alfred. Item number five. One of the things that's going to accelerate the movement of these, you know, woo-woo subjects into the mainstream and their treatment as serious as everything else that we think is serious, and a lot of that, frankly, is not. It's just distraction, is what's going on under the rubric of item number five. This is from Universe Today. It was published a few weeks ago. It's called An Alternative Theory of Inertia Will Get Tested in Space. As you know, there is a, an active spacecraft in orbit tonight called Barry 1, put together by an independent uh, uh, group uh, out of South Dakota called IVO Systems launched by another independent group out of Laconia, New Hampshire, called Rogue Space Systems. You get the idea? And what they've done is they together have combined their forces, and the IVO guys have created a space drive, a hyper-dimensional space drive, in two forms, which is in this CubeSat spacecraft called Barry-1, which is orbiting tonight. Uh, average altitude is about 320 or 30 miles above the Earth. And it was launched as part of a cluster of spacecraft that uh, Elon Musk and others now launched as what they called ride-along satellites. They have a big booster. They've got space, they've sold commercial space to launch X number of payloads. Um, They've got space left over. The rocket is going to overperform for the allocated payloads that it's carrying. So some brilliant genius set up the idea, well, if we have extra space, really wait, why don't we dedicate it to other payloads which would have a lesser priority except we've got space? So the rogue people launched their spacecraft on one of Musk's rockets, a Falcon 9, with a whole bunch of other payloads uh, on the on the November uh, was November 11th of 2023, just a couple months ago, just shy of a couple months ago, and the payloads were all dispersed. They're in their proper orbits now, functioning fine, uh, because of Musk and other visionaries in the space business that basically say, okay, let's how do we use this resource to maximize not profits but opportunity to move the whole space business, space game, space um, infrastructure forward. So tonight we've got Barry 1 orbiting the Earth every 95 minutes, give or take, in this uh, median altitude of 320-some miles. It varies between 317 now and about 341, I think. And they've been watching it, and we've been watching it, including some members of our enterprise team, as under normal atmospheric drag, its orbit has been getting lower and lower and lower, as you would expect. Here's where the hyperdimensional part comes in. In another few days, it actually might have already happened, because just before airtime, literally, I saw an email from one of our colleagues that I have not had time to read, and he's one of the people who's been monitoring this orbit. So... When they turn the engine, they're going to do both tests separately, two different modes of the same bizarre drive. <clears throat> the spacecraft has no rockets. 
It has no fuel. It has no means to do anything but drift and sink lower and lower. And eventually, if something isn't done, it will enter the atmosphere and burn up. That's what everybody would look at this payload and at this mission and say, okay, it's going to burn up. Why? It doesn't have any engines in a conventional sense. What it does have is two versions of a hyperdimensional drive, which literally is, is tagged in that article, in the uh, Universe Today article. Read what the experts, the naysayers, the skeptics say is impossible because of their physics and what they think, you know, how they think the universe works. Well, it works a little differently than those guys think. Alfred knows it, and I know it, from two, again, very different perspectives. But if they turn this thing on, and they may already have done this, that was the kind of emergency email that I got that I haven't read yet, and during the next break I will read it, and I will report to you what Greg has found. Um, when they turn it on, the idea is that without any conventional Newtonian third law action-reaction rockets, meaning you <clears throat> heat up a fuel, excite the, uh, the molecules to a high velocity, squirt them out the back in something called a rocket engine, and the uh, reaction, remember third law, action-reaction, will drive the spacecraft forward. That would be the only way under every conventional view of science all over the world tonight uniformly, is what cannot happen. A spacecraft without a rocket cannot move in space and will eventually die. It'll burn up. However, if they turn this thing on and it works, as I'm forecasting, apart from a broken wire, which we'll find out about, if it works, it changes on planet Earth tonight everything. Let me repeat that. If this experiment works, if their intention, the IVO folks with a guy named Richard Mansell at the helm, if this visionary engineer's vision works, it will mean they can raise the orbit. Uh, their plan is to raise it 60 miles, 100 kilometers, so that the worldwide tracking, I mean, literally, after the show tonight, we're going to put up on, on the top of the uh, other side of Midnight website, the direct link so you can watch, monitor in real time the worldwide tracking by all kinds of different governments and different agencies and different you know intelligence groups and all that. You can watch this orbit change if they turn it on and it works because their, their intent is to raise it to about 60 miles. Now, <clears throat> I have put in a request to Mr. Mansell to come on the other side of midnight and talk about his experiment. And he said they're only going to do it, you know, when the experiment is done, meaning they turn it on, it works, and they achieve their objectives. The Forbes magazine article, which I posted, you know, a couple, three weeks ago, had its writers say, well, basically, if, even if it works, nobody's going to believe them. And you might think that the guy's being a little kind of out. No, he's not. I mean, look at how long we have belabored the evidence, overwhelming evidence of an ancient set of civilizations on Mars, and nobody cares officially. Everybody's got their head in the sand. They don't want to know. Well, in the same way, if this spacecraft breaks the laws of physics, 
smash. At this point, if I wasn't fastidious, I would drop a glass and you'd hear glass shattering. So just imagine that in your mind. If this thing works, it changes everything. Not only because does it shatter the laws of physics, it shatters the known conscious laws of consciousness. It means there is a hyperdimension, because as you're going to read in the Universe Today piece, it can't work unless it reaches out time outside current space-time and literally brings en- energy information is from another dimension to use it to move itself in our three dimensions. This one experiment, in all of history, one blatantly visible shining beacon of an experiment can prove what we have been saying for decades. There is more to this reality than most people, by design, by inculcated design, by the institutions, uh, believe in until you die. That's the one break point that you get to, you know, get over there to whatever other realities there are, but you got to die here to do that. Even that may not be true forevermore, and that's part of a much larger conversation. So, that's what's on the line tonight, because if this thing works, it will turn Hoagland's wacky idea of hyperdimensional physics into something that's real, scalable, testable, viewable. And what I've said to Mansell, well, if they don't believe you by raising the orbit, you know, 60 miles, did I tell you this spacecraft has six separate cameras on it? No, we didn't know that until a couple of days ago. I said to Mansell, you know, well, if they won't believe you in Earth orbit, send the damn thing to the moon. Let me say that again. If they won't believe you by changing orbits around the Earth, just send it to the moon. Put it in orbit there. Take close-up images. Bring it back. In other words, this is an experiment which, unless it is sabotaged overtly by the deep state, i.e. they kill it, it is the hallmark, the beacon, on which a totally different future for 2024 and 2025 and the Earth and humanity and each and every one of you listening to me tonight, it's the beacon on which a incredibly open and hopeful and positive and self-fulfilling future can be achieved. And that's not tiddlywinks. That's pretty amazing. So finally, before we close out this block, and then I bring Alfred on in the uh, next segment after the bottom of the hour, there is another experiment being launched uh, tomorrow on an untested mainstream rocket called a Vulcan rocket. Vulcan rocket. And on board, in addition to like 20 or 30 separate experiments, this one is going to the moon. It's going to be the first private commercial spacecraft to hopefully land on the moon with a little help from NASA. It carries, as I said, these experiments. It also carries two separate sets of little test tubes in which there are the ashes of humans who want to be forevermore residing on the moon. Now, why is this interesting? It's been done before. Because one set of those ashes are Scotty and Uhura and McCoy and Spock and others from the original 
Star Trek, including the great bird of the galaxy himself, Gene Roddenberry. He is going to the moon with his friends, his compatriots, his pioneers. And that, of course, is an epic moment in history because, if nothing else, I think Star Trek has admittedly changed the curve of the future and we have no idea what's up ahead except it could be very, very extraordinary. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. On the other side, Alfred Weber. And welcome back, everyone, on this snowy Sunday night, January 7th for 2023. Our conversation with Alfred Weber, because we're going to be covering a wide range of, well, I'm going to hit it right on the head, probably what I would term hyperdimensional subjects. So let me give you some background on Alfred Weber. Now, the, the actual bio uh, on the uh, Enterprise, Enterprise, on the Other Side of Midnight website is not really apropos of him at all. He is so, so, so much more. So let me just say he's a graduate from Georgetown Preparatory School. He's a Yale Law graduate in international law, University of Texas, a Fulbright scholar. Um, Alfred was uh, has taught at two universities, maybe more by now, Yale and the University of Texas. And there is so much, much more to Alfred Weber. So, Alfred, welcome to the other side of midnight. I don't <coughs> think you've ever been on. 
I remember we had a conversation some years ago, but our schedules have not coincided until tonight. Tell people, A, how did you get into the entire subject of exopolitics? How did you create the field of exopolitics? And begin with how your education kind of set you up to ask the huge question that everybody should ask, which is, what the heck is really going on around here? Wow, that that's a, that's a deep question. We have Thank hours. You. I, I feel... <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, um, toward the end of, of uh, two... 2000, let, let's see, toward the end of, uh, ooh, I, I have to go back back there, toward the end of 1972, I believe it was, uh, I was general counsel of the Environmental Protection Administration of the state of New York under Mayor John Lindsay. Oh, I knew John. And, yeah, remember, he was, Remember he in was, that? Remember in that time frame, they had the 75th anniversary of the city of New York, all the boroughs coming together as New York City? Yeah, that, that, that was really quite a time. Well, I was at the Hayden Planetarium, and we created a whole program dedicated to the city and the assemblage of all the boroughs into one unified you know, government. And John Lindsay was the mayor, and he came to the Hayden Planetarium up there on Central Park West uh, to be part of our ceremonies that night, whole long night. So yes, he was he was a very visionary guy. I always was surprised he never went further than mayor of New York. Well, I, I, I will tell you this this story. He attempted to, because toward toward the end of. Uh, of uh, that, that 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 time, John John Lindsay decided to run for president, and uh, Jerome Kretschmer, uh, who was my immediate boss, decided to run for for mayor. And at that time, I had been reading a lot in the area of hyperdimension. You know. Uh, Morning of the Magicians and Psychic oh, yes. Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtains. And and I, in my mind, I said that uh, uh, my being inside of a linear kind of urban law enforcement agency was not in my future. So uh, as Mayor Lindsay decided to run for president and... Uh, uh, Administrator Kretschmer decided to run for for um, mayor. I internally said, you know, this is it for me, and I decided to leave uh, the EPA and to launch myself out. And at that time, synchronistically, I met a uh, a professor of experimental psychology at Rutgers University, Dr. Philip Liss, who was also an ET contactee. Ah. And that's how I, I sort of uh, uh, became uh, uh, in contact with this area. And that led to uh, 
and so I left my 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 work in uh, January there at, at at the end of that that year, and in and in January I started there, and and that led to in in uh, in February my my own personal interdimensional experience uh, uh, where I was taken up into an extraterrestrial craft. And uh, not only, you know, and I, I, I read about that in a, in a uh, uh, 750 page book, which is available on Amazon called My Journey Landing Heaven on earth so it's there <laughs> and not only that if one goes into it I have an eyewitness who himself is an attorney um, and who is a former uh, DARPA CIA time traveler and a Mars explorer Andrew D. Bishago who was taken aboard the craft as well by the extraterrestrials and who was there as an observer. And, and he and I have both presented at conferences and, and Andrew has publicly stated, uh, and you know, he and I are both mem members of the bar and we're both uh, licensed attorneys and He's he's a member of the federal federal district courts, and and he has stated how he witnessed me aboard the craft, um, and not only that, but um, uh, the future president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, was aboard the craft, and that is how uh, in the craft. Uh, I was prepared, number one, to help in the uh, uh, presidential election of Jimmy Carter and then helped to be the uh, director of the uh, Carter Extraterrestrial Communication Project, which was planned in aboard the uh, extraterrestrial craft and then when it landed, uh, you know, after that, which which uh, was like a missing time experience, then the whole thing manifested uh, uh, a few years later by um, uh, number one, a uh, an emissary from Jimmy Carter's campaign coming to to New York, inviting me out to lunch at a hotel, uh, inviting me down to Washington D.C. To have um, uh, uh, a meal during the transition period, you know, in in December between the election and and uh, Carter's inauguration, uh, where I had um, uh, I met uh, Carter's inner circle. They they called themselves JC and the 12 apostles when I, when I walked in. <laughs> when I, Nothing like when having I high in aspirations. Room, yeah. When I, when I walked in the room, they say, y'all going to work for Peanut? <laughs> they, they called him Peanut. 
And um, it was there uh, that during that meal that I that I realized that that what was needed then at that point uh, was something that went beyond uh, what uh, what Washington up to that point had experienced because up to that point they, they had just had con congressional hearings for example where, where they brought in uh, there there had been some uh, a great a great UFO flap in Gerald Ford's Michigan district right and and they brought in uh, the former Secretary of Defense uh, uh, the the guy who was with with the Ford the the Ford Motor Company. I'm blocking on his name. Robert McNamara. Yeah, Mac McNamara, who who went to the hearings and said, "Oh, that was just swamp gas." <laughs> so that was what what was happening then, and so uh, it was during the meetings with. Um, uh, down in the mansion in in Washington D.C. between Carter's election and his inauguration, where I was a special guest, where Carter and I had planned the, the whole thing aboard the ships with Annie Chicago as the witness uh, uh, that I saw that that we had to go deeper into what turned out to be the uh, the Carter E.T. Um, uh, uh, you know the the ET communication project, and so from there, a friend of mine was a um, was a uh, a deep friend of uh, uh, the two scientists at Stanford Research Institute that were doing the um, remote viewing experiment. So I flew out to. Is this Russell uh, Targ and Putoff? Yes, put off in Targ. So uh, my my then wife was out in in the West Coast, and I flew out o over the Christmas break, and I met with with Russ Targ and Hal Put off, and I said I've just come from meeting with uh, the 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 incoming president's uh, inner circle, and. Uh, we'd like to do an extraterrestrial communication project with Jimmy Carter because, of course, Carter, because he had filed his own UFO sighting report, had promised to make the UFO files public as part of his campaign. But more than that, he had been taken up into the ships and, you know, that, that was a deeper issue. Now, and, uh, hang, and on, so, hang on, hang on, hang on. Was he aware of this, or was this like a screen memory where there was briefings, but in the in the 3D world, he did not consciously remember, he just had an impulse to do certain things? You know, that is a deep question, because what led Carter to send a personal emissary who was a, a, a member of a very distinguished Atlanta law firm uh, uh, to meet me at a New York hotel and, and to uh, uh, 
send a personal emissary prior uh, to uh, the, you know, right after his election and, and to have a deep conversation with me because at that point I was a consultant to Henry B, Representative Henry B. Gonzalez, uh, the chairman of the House Banking Committee, and he had just gotten the, the approval uh, for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Oh. And what is not known, what is not known is that Jimmy Carter is the half-brother of John F. Kennedy. What? See, Jimmy Carter's mother was John F. Kennedy's father's secretary. And she became pregnant oh my. With, John, with John Kennedy's father, and John Kennedy sent her back to Georgia, and she was pregnant, and she gave birth. And then, uh, 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 Henry, at that time, I was co-director of the Assassination Information Bureau, and we had been lobbying for... A, a, a congressional hearing on the John F. Kennedy assassination, which of course the reason why John F. Kennedy had been assassinated in Dallas was so, so he would not give the speech at the Dallas uh, uh, at the Dallas March. He was scheduled to give a speech on November 22nd at 1 p.m in which he would give disclosure. He was going to give a disclosure speech, and that's why they assassinated him at 1230 at Dealey Plaza. Mm. So he wouldn't give that speech. Mm. And that was published uh, just this past two weeks by my colleague, Robert Morningstar. So this is all interconnected. So Jimmy oh, Carter's... web we weave when virtue oh, yes. practice to deceive which is my grandmother used to say, only goes to show we need more practice. Exactly. So, so that, why would, so that Jimmy Carter must have been completely awake to send that emissary who was a top-level lawyer in an Atlanta law firm to, to meet with me at the Hotel Carlisle in New York to invite me down to meet with the with the inner circle in a in a townhouse in Washington DC during the transition period where you know they said oh you're going to work for peanut so they <laughs> and that was just after Carter and I had been in this in this ET ship, you see, planning the whole thing. Did you ever? So, did you, Alfred, in in three D? You know this reality. Yeah. Did you and Carter ever talk about the ship experience? No. Why not? The most that I, because I I, I never got to see him personally. With hmm. it, let let me explain. I. Um, when I this is this is what I did. Um, I I I went uh, from that meeting with the advisors. I then said, well, uh, uh, to myself, I thought, uh, 
we have to get the Carter White House Extraterrestrial Communication Project going. And uh, Mary Schoonmaker was a friend of mine from New York, and she was a very good friend of, of uh, uh, Hal Putoff and Russ Targ. And so she set it up. I flew out to the, to the West Coast. I met with Hal uh, put off in Russ Targ, and they said, you have to go and meet with the Futurist Unit at uh, here at SRI. So they they set up a meeting with the Futurist Unit at, at, at uh, there at SRI, the, the Center for the Study of Social Policy, and I walked in and I, I told them the story. I said, guys, I just met with the inner circle of incoming president Jimmy Carter, he's promised to do UFOs, and they're open to a to a UFO uh, thing. And what uh, what SRI does is what they call contract research. Right. And that is uh, you, you get a research project and, and the federal government pays for it. And so I said, let's do it as a research project. And so I was hired on the spot, and they gave me an offer. And so uh, I started at the beginning of, of a January, and the first day I started, I walked in, and uh, Willis Harmon, who was the head futurist, took me aside on the first day because uh, the, the futurist unit there had a contract uh, with the Central Intelligence Agency mm. to do a 50-year future study of the United States. And he said to me, he said, Alfred, I must tell you that the United States is going to break up into several parts. Okay? Oh. And, and that has stuck with me because a book that I have just come out with is entitled in the future, will the United States of America break up into many, many regions of public inquiry? And, and that's why you have the red states against the blue states. And 33% of, of uh, voters in Trump states believe that they would be better off if the United States broke off into... A, a foreign country, a separate country. And in 2023, the Republican Party, the Texas Republican Party adopted a plank for the secession of Texas. And in fact, in their November ballot, there is now a public ballot, a public ballot for on the Texas ballot for the secession of Texas from the United States. Well, well this is not that the is first time. I remember some years ago there was a Texas ballot. There was something in the western part of uh, or eastern part of Oregon, I believe. There have been these secessionist movements for at least a couple of decades, but they've never sure they've never really yeah uh, but, un until but now look accumulated. At the, but but look at the current state of relations between Texas and the federal government. Right now, you have had 
since the beginning of the current administration, 8.3 million illegal migrants from all over the world, Africa, South America, Asia, China, come in. Well, wait, 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 Alfred, Alfred, wait, 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 wait. They're not illegal migrants, they're refugees. And under U.S. law and United Nations law, which we're co-signers to, refugees applying for asylum get a hearing. The problem with the 8 million or so is that they're so backlogged because the hearing process has been starved deliberately for judges and adjudication and hearings and all the normal legal process that we basically allow these refugees into the country. It looks to American citizens like they're taking jobs Americans should rightfully no, have, which is no, not that, true. That is, I, I beg to differ you on facts. Okay. That's a, mis, a mischaracterization because there is some motivation which is driving a mass migration toward the southern border. And that migration, believe me, during the 1990s, I was the administrator, I was an administrator of the Brownsville, Texas uh, uh, Community Health Center, overseeing 20 physicians, 120 nurses, and, and 90,000 patient encounters a year. And uh, uh, I, I was intimately involved with the border at Brownsville, and now that that is under a panic situation that they are being overrun. Uh, uh, there, there are eight. There was no way that 8.3 million people that have come over over the last three years. There was nothing like that during the years. Yeah, but you can't compare conditions official... then, Alfred. You can't compare conditions then to conditions now. Conditions in the third world, particularly in Central and South America, have so deteriorated both politically, economically, environmentally. People are going to want to live. They're going to want to their children to live. It's like if, if, if Reagan used to call us the shining city on a hill. If you are in the valley, and that, you, and that you, is a false narrative, and I challenge it because if you go to these countries, the the uh, mental health asylums have been emptied. Uh, this is a targeting. Of okay, then the let, 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 let me go back to your conversation with William Harmon. All right, remember he's the one as part of the CIA fifty-year study that said that we would break, yeah. that we would break up into separate regions. Yeah. Do so you hang I on, believe, hang on, hang on, hang on? This is a conversation. I, yeah, yeah. Do you remember a very famous line from uh, X Files when I forget whether it was the smoking man or the gray man, you know, this invisible panel? And he was asked at one point, you know, well, what do you guys do? Well, we predict the future. And then he goes on to say, and we found the best way to predict the future is to control it so yes is this migration right. hang on is this migration yeah. is this incredibly 
you know, bifurcated political reaction against a, quote, invasion, is it all part of a larger plan to, in fact, destroy the United States of America, maybe headquartered in the CIA? Well, th this even goes further and deeper. And that gets to my another of my new books called The Chronogarchy. And the word chronogarchy is a, a neologism from chronos and archi. Chronos is time and archos is control and it's those who control through time. And it's those and it's that is about the secret time travel government. Hang on, hang and on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You just introduced in the conversation a totally non-mainstream, hyperdimensional agency, and we need to document how you arrived at that conclusion, okay? Sure, sure. Um, uh, let me uh, state how I arrived at it. Um, and we've got three minutes, so do, do the tease, do a setup, and then we'll continue the conversation on the other side. Okay. The way that I arrived at this was through research and through personal experience. Through research, I have interviewed and documented um, uh, the existence of a secret DARPA CIA uh, time travel uh, um, time travel agency. And I have interviewed whistleblowers uh, from there uh, and uh, chrononauts who have tra traveled through time. And I have shown that uh, uh, U.S. Presidents George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Don Donald J. Trump, and Joseph Robinette Biden were all pre-identified by the quantum access uh, DARPA CIA secret time travel project Pegasus in 1971. They were pre-identified and they were briefed in 1971 that they would be future presidents. And uh, that is uh, why uh, U.S. Uh, e elections really currently are a farce because uh, they have been controlled by the, um, by the uh, chronogarchy. And not only that, in my, in my book, uh, Time Screen, I show that uh, if you go back to the late 1800s uh, to the, to the uh, books, of a a member of the bar in 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 the late 1800s, a member of the bar in in New York City, Ingersoll Lockwood, he writes a, a novels which have uh, characters in there named Pence, named Donald, named Baron, and the name of the novel is The Last President. The hotel is mm. on the exact location on Fifth Avenue. Okay, hang on, Trump hang on. We are up against the clock. We're at the top of the hour. I get too wrapped up in my guest, particularly Alfred tonight. Uh, we're talking with Alfred Weber, who is an international lawyer, 
He was uh, part of uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, transition planning for an actual ET communications research project. And he is now introduced into the conversation something so incredibly outrageous, a deep state controlled time travel agency. And someone said to me, we're not letting him finish. Well, I cannot allow, at least I don't on my show, people to make statements that are not supported by evidence. I like evidence. I'm totally willing to believe anything provided there is evidence. So when we come back, Alfred will provide us with evidence of a real time travel agency that's been determining the future of the United States, according to him, for decades. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.